We, cut, we got to about verse 6. I'm going to back up just a little bit just to kind of get the running start. And what, what I found interesting, and we, we kind of got into this last week, but it's important to understand that there, uh, there are different layers of meanings in some of these psalms. For example, in Acts chapter 4, which we looked at last week, Peter refers to Psalm 2, referring to uh, the leaders and the people rising up against the Messiah and putting him to death. And of course, he brought out the important fact of the resurrection as well. And, and that's an applicable meaning. In the times of the kings of Judah, this may have been viewed as, as some type of a, a prophecy for the kings to be warned in. This was also considered a coronation psalm. That they would, when a new king would come to power, this would be part of his uh, being coronated. Um, and so, some of it is prophetic. This psalm, Psalm 2, is also messianic. So, you will have dual fulfillments. Uh, the, the church has looked at this in a couple of different ways. Referring back, as Peter did, to the, to the leaders and the people who persecuted Jesus. But also, uh, it has in view the idea of a final uprising of the people and the kings um, and the rulers taking counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. So, th there is a future element in this particular psalm as well. Um, and what, what you have... In here, I, I just thought it was fascinating where my mind went. Um, my, it's fascinating where my mind goes anyway, but I, I shouldn't go there, right? Because uh, Brian understands it because his mind, yeah, his mind does the same thing, but usually we're in two different directions, right? <laughs> it's just how it works. What's that? Close to it. Yeah, close to it. Um, but because there are, there's descriptions here and I'm going to get to this in a minute, hopefully. There are descriptions here that imply spiritual principles that are not necessarily specifically addressed in the text. Does that make any sense? Or maybe once I open this up for you, it will. So I saw that look on your face, so let's, let's reconnect on that, and, and hopefully you get a little bit of clarity before we leave tonight, okay? Um, but first of all, because, because this is a messianic psalm, backtracking just a touch in verse 2, against Yahweh, or against the Lord, and against his anointed, okay? Notice that anointed, if you have a new King James, anointed is capitalized. I think the ESV doesn't rely heavy on capitalization, um, I don't know if the Christian standard, it does. Um, and it, because, now again, that's interpretive, but I think it's a good interpretation uh, because it's a reference to the anointed or to the Messiah. 
the anointed is this word here in the Hebrew is Mashiach, uh, translated anointed. Most of the time in the scripture, although not all of the time in scripture, will refer to the coming Messiah, Jesus, but not always. This idea of anointing was something that was done to priests, prophets, and to kings. And it was done in a ceremony where they would have oil poured over them. Oil is a representation of whom? The Holy Spirit. And so they would be anointed with oil, covered with oil, mashiach, if we want to get Hebrew about it, with oil, uh, designating the covering the Holy Spirit upon that person for the ministry to which God has called them to do. So, I, I, I just pulled out a few verses, um, although there are many, particularly in the Old Testament, but one of, my, one of my favorite verses is found in Isaiah 61, referring to an Old Testament. It's an Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah, and I'll read it to you, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And then verse 3, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So, um, he's really, Isaiah is really patterning what he's writing here, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's patterning it to some degree from Psalm 2. The, against the Lord and his anointed. Verse 6 is where we're going to pick up. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Notice the reference in verse 3 of Isaiah 61 to console those who mourn in Zion. Um, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Who is the me in this chapter? Isaiah 61, if, you, if you're there, if you see it, if you have it in front of you. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Who is it talking about? You could even say, who is speaking here? Well, fortunately, we have an answer to that. Let's look at Luke chapter 4. Right around verse 18 and 19, although I will probably backtrack to get some more context. Okay, verse 14 of Luke chapter 4. It says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So, goes back up to the northern region of where Israel is dwelling. The Spirit of the power 
uh, the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went around all the surrounding region, and he began to teach in the synagogues and being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth. What was, what's, what's significant about Nazareth? Essentially, absolutely nothing other than, exactly, it's where Jesus was from, and it's where Mary and Joseph were from, uh, although he wasn't born there. But they didn't get that right either about him. But um, So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he'd opened the book, he found the place where it is written. And now this is a Septuagint translation, so it'll read slightly different than your uh, English uh, translation, but he's reading from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. To, uh, he has sent me to heal up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord. So he doesn't completely read all of Isaiah 61, by the way. He doesn't read in the day of vengeance of our God. But it says, then he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And without, uh, this, is, this is a great passage to read. I, I, I don't want to take the time. But he tells them, essentially, that they're not going to hear him. And they, they love his message so much. It says, so all of those who were in the synagogue, verse 28, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath, and they rose up, and they thrust him out of the city, and they led him to a brow of the hill on which the city was built, and that they might throw him down over the cliff. And he passed through their midst and then, uh, of them, and he went on his way. So uh, the initial proclamation in his hometown of his messianic ministry on earth this was not long after he had been uh, in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights being tested, which happened immediately after what? His baptism. It was very early in his ministry. He's stepping forth. Proclaim they understood what he was saying. He's proclaiming himself as the Messiah. He's saying the me in Isaiah chapter 61 is him uh, and saying it correctly. Um, Simon and Peter both understood this. John chapter 1, verse 41, it says he first found his own brother. Uh, this is Andrew. Uh, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, that is translated the Christ. In other words, the anointed one, we've found him. Um, so Peter, later on, preaching in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, he says, he, he talks about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. There you go, right? 
God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, which is exactly what we just read in Luke 4, wasn't it? Essentially. And, and he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So they recognized, even in the ministry of Jesus before he went to the cross, they recognized him as the anointed one. And so Yahweh, God the Father, declares, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now remember, as we talked about last week, This brings, remember in Jewish interpretation and in Jewish literature, it doesn't always say things directly. It doesn't always say things directly. Sometimes it hints at them. And verse 6, as I talked about last week, is really a hint, verse 6 and 7, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Uh, verse 6 and 7 is a huge hint back to the promise that God made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'll just read to you one verse out of that. Again, we, we covered that um, last week. Because in 2 Samuel 7, we'll go back to verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, this is what is being said to David. Well, let's back up again. God says to David, verse 11, since the time that I have commanded judges to be over my people Israel and caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Now, why did God say that to David? It was in response to David's desire to build God a house, right? It's almost like a play on words going on here, at least in the Hebrew. David wants to build the temple. Nathan, the prophet, says, do all that is in your heart. God sets, takes him aside and says, no, I don't want David building the temple. You know the story. But then he gives Nathan this message to bring back to David. And part of that is that God says he will build, he will make you a house. Now the house is a, not a reference to a dwelling place, but it's a reference to his kingly dynasty. So far this is all making sense. It's a reference to his kingly dynasty. Um, Like all of us who have children, our posterity is a part of our house. And the, the term is used in the scriptures referring to the household. Like, for instance, the household of David, the household of Stephanus uh, in, the new, uh, in the New Testament. Uh, it, uh, and, and David is saying, God is saying to David, not only are you going to be king, but I'm going to make for you a dynasty. And then he goes on to talk about what he's going to do for David when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers. In other words, when you die, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, let me stop here because I think this is where it threw some people off. This is a prophecy 
and the promise that has layered meanings. More than one meaning in here. Okay. And it says, he shall build a house for my name. Okay. He is the king after David. Who is the he in verse 13? It's talking about Solomon. And Solomon will build a temple for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father and he shall be my son. And if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. So he's made this incredible to promise to David that he's going to continue through Solomon. The house of David continues through Solomon and it lasts forever. Which is an ultimate understanding. And then he goes on to say in verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. I don't think it can be any clearer. So why is there not a king in Israel? I heard Jesus and I couldn't quite hear the rest. No, I think you're there. Again, in prophecies, at times, you have a near fulfillment. In this case, it was Solomon. You have a far fulfillment. In this case, it's none other than Jesus Christ. Again, and I mentioned this, I think, last week. That's why you have the two genealogies that in the Gospels, one in Matthew and one of Luke, that they both go through the line of David. Now, the problem was that the Judean kings in the house of David weren't any more godly than the kings of Israel. So they lost their right to be in the land. God essentially took them out of the land because of idolatry. Second Chronicles is very clear about that. And they lost the ability to self-rule. So... Would that seem to suggest that this promise wasn't a good promise after all? Because here David, and I think David wrote Psalm 2, Peter believes it. Here David says that, that um, the Lord has said to me, verse 7, we're back in Psalm 2. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. You could say, ask of me and I will give you the Gentiles for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. David wrote that at the very beginning of his dynasty, not knowing what was going to happen to it other than he had received a promise from God. But then... Because of their disobedience, essentially the dynasty ended for a period of time. 
It's revised in a way that we did not expect when Jesus comes in the flesh. Again, that's the reason for the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. Are you all with me so far? I, I'm not sure. Uh, the promise? Oh, you, back in 2 Samuel? His response... Second Samuel, that's why I bring more than one Bible. Okay, his response tells me he totally understood. But he might not have understood the particulars. I mean, how this was actually going to play out. Verse 18 of Second Samuel 7. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this is a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord? Now what can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant for your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all the great things to make your servant know them. And then it actually goes on. And then he says, your... Um, my goodness, I it's almost, almost want to read the entire thing. But he says, um, and, and verse 23, And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation of the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make for himself a name and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land. Notice, your land, Israel, before your people whom you redeemed, for yourself from Egypt, the nations, and their gods. For you have made your people, Israel, your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And then he goes on. Um, uh, and then he says, Let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. So he totally understood uh, what was going on. Um, How it was going to play out, I don't know that he did. And he probably had that in mind. Now, here's the big question. We don't know. Was, did David write Psalm 2 after the promise, after the covenant? Probably, but we don't know for sure. Um, but he goes on, I will declare the decree, the Lord, back in Psalms, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Okay. Um, but you have this very, very long period of time that, whether well, it just, I wish I would have thought of this two, three hours ago. I think it's in Hosea where it prophesies that they, Israel will continue for a long time without a king, without a temple. Um, and, you have this very long time where it does not feel that this promise is being fulfilled. Particularly when you think of after the Babylonian exile, when they finally were able to come home, I'm trying to think of my dates here, 
about 500 years between the time they returned home, had actually a very short period of independence, and the Messiah is born. And wondering what, what, what happened here. Because the, the covenants are still in place. The Lord said to David, the word forever. The Lord said to Abraham, the word forever. Jews understand one covenant does not annul the other. They are added. They are addendums. Does that make sense? The covenant God made with Abraham. Blessing, I will bless you, right? And uh, your descendant, your seed, singular, will be a blessing to the whole world. I'm just quick paraphrase on it. But he tells us on his holy hill, He will set Zion. He will set his king. So the kingly line ceased to exist. Not only is this in 2 Samuel 7, but it's also in Psalm 89, but it'll be a while before we get there, but that's just a, another reference for you. And what that, this tells me a lot of things. First of all, some of these things have physical limits, but the spiritual limits do not have limitations. The spiritual does not have limitations. The physical can have limitations. The spiritual does not have limitations. Now, but what about this idea of today I've begotten you? I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Let's look at Romans 1. Y'all with me so far? Romans chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. That's verse 1. Separated to the gospel of God, which he, that is God, promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What is Paul talking about? The Old Testament prophets. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born according to the seed of David. See, he already, he's going back to 2 Samuel 7 right here. And Psalm 89, but we didn't take the time to look at it. Who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God. Today I have begotten you, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Declared to be the Son of God I got lost here. Excuse me. Declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. That's the Holy Spirit. By the resurrection from the dead. Paul is telling us that the resurrection was a declaration of Jesus 
having been begotten of the Father. But it's not talking about, now this is what, this is real important, so bear with me on this one. Now if I've lost you so far, let me know. Because I want to catch you up. Because I'm, I'm going to, if you think we've been in the deep end, just wait till I push you over the edge on this one. When we look at Psalm 2, today I have begotten you, verse 7. In the Hebrew verb grammatical forms, they have different grammatical forms that are used in different cases to describe things. A verb is what? An action word, right? All right. Now, I barely understand Hebrew, let alone understand Hebrew grammar. So I'm, I'm, I just pushed myself over into the deep end on this one. Two of the verb stems, one's called the qual, Q-A-L. There's more than two, but as a comparison, we're just going to look at two. Here in Psalm 2, it's in the qual. And when this word, translated begotten, is in the qual verb stem, it is used for more of a general relationship between people. We see this in Genesis chapter 9 in what is called the table of the nations. We're not going to take the time to, excuse me, Genesis 10. Right, you caught me on that one, huh, Brian? No, okay. Genesis 10, the table of the nations speaks of a relationship between peoples. Thanks, Brian. We're going to get the lights on so we can think better. How's that? So when we are talking about, thank you, when we are talking about this word in a qual verb stem, it is not talking about causation. In other words, it's not talking about fathering in the biological sense, all right? It's talking about relationship among peoples. So when we read this in Psalm 2, today I've begotten you, it is not that the father was the cause of the origin of the son. It is a designation of relationship, a relationship of love between two members of the Trinity. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay. So in, yes. So in Psalm 2, when it says, because remember it says, I will declare the degree the Lord has said to me. In other words, there is a person identified here as me, who is speaking. I think it's the Messiah. I think it's Jesus. So, but me says, you are my son, or re, 
quoting the Father. You are my son, today I've begotten you. In other words, Jesus tells us that the Father said that to him. Grammatically, in the Hebrew, because it is a qual stem, Q-A-L, it speaks of a relationship between parties or peoples, not about the causation or the generation of the son. I'm going to let you chew on it. I know you even got a question, or I'll even say it a third time and try to, because I, I can tell you're still processing it. Okay. So, when we say, I have begotten our children, I played a part in that. All right? I, I'm their biological father. When the Father, God the Father, says to God the Son, today I have begotten you, he's talking about their relationship between the two. Not of the fact that the Father came first and then created the Son. I think, I think we've hit it home on you. Anybody have any questions? See, that's what, that's what the grammar says because I have I've had people tell me look it says here today I've begotten you that means that the father was first and he created the son wrong in the beginning was the word the word was with God and the word was God the same was in the beginning with God so in the beginning it wasn't just the Father all by himself, and he decided he needed some company, so he made Jesus and he made the Holy Spirit. What Paul is saying in Romans 1 is that the resurrection was the affirmation and the evidence of who Jesus is, God without beginning. declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So he was declared to... We've seen it in John already. We see it in John 6, even last Sunday. Show us another sign. Right? And in, in uh, uh, Peter that I referred to earlier in Acts chapter 10, referring to the, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, He's talking about the resurrection. Yeah, I, I, would, I would encourage you to go back and look at Acts 10 uh, and just kind of backtrack into that a little bit. So, the resurrection affirms, confirms, demonstrates who Jesus is. God from all eternity. One of the three members of the Trinity. But I still didn't answer the question of why there's no king in Israel. Because Psalms 2 doesn't really tell us. 
But Paul, and to me this just fascinates me. Um, and if I can't find it, oh. Now this word declared, by the way, in Romans, four, in Romans 1, it means to be marked out or to be defined. Or you could say that Jesus was defined. Everything has to have a definition, right? Defined as the Son of God. But why is there no king in Israel? Let's go to Romans 4. This is not implicit, excuse me, explicit in Psalm 2, but I think, I think Paul really grabbed a hold of something here that I think we can apply into the question of why is there no king in Israel today? Romans chapter 4, which is a, is a, and it's, it's a great, great chapter. And it begins with what shall we say uh, that Abraham, our father, uh, has found according to the flesh. All right? But uh, he's rehearsing the history of the people of faith, which is, he's using as the example Israel. And he's talking about the promise that God made to Abraham. And it says, for the promise, verse 13 of Romans 4, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. He's making a comparison between the law and faith and how what? The just shall live by faith. It's Habakkuk 2, 2, I believe. And Romans is all about defining the just. Galatians quotes it again. It defines shall, uh, shall live. And Hebrews quotes it a third time. It defines by faith. The just shall live by faith. And then he goes on and he says, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise have made no effect. Uh, which makes sense, right? We either trust in God or we try to earn it ourselves, which I don't know about you, but I think we've already probably blown that. Um, that's why Brian has to sit in a different row. But anyway, um, Then in verse 16, it says, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham, who was the father of us all. That's Jew and Gentile alike, by the way. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him... Whom believed? God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which did not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed so that he may become the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Background information here. When God made this promise to Abraham, how many children did he have? 
zero. And then he finally has a son through supernatural means. I'm not talking about Ishmael. I'm talking about Isaac. And then what does God do? He tells him to take Isaac and to sacrifice him. Hebrews 11 is so so rich here because it says that Abraham, I'm going to paraphrase due to time, Abraham was obedient and believed if necessary, what? God would raise him from the dead. Now you remember the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac on the altar. God made him stop, correct? It's, it's a picture of, of the sacrifice of Jesus in many, many ways. I'm not going to unpack that. But Abraham was obedient because he knew that God had made him a promise. And he knew that if God made him a promise, that God would be faithful to fulfill that promise. And part of God's fulfilling of the promises is, and I, I love this again in Romans, because it tells us God who gives life to the dead. God will give life to the dead house of David. Now technically, Jesus is ruling and reigning on the throne, sitting at the right hand of the Father right now. Okay? But God gives life to the dead and he calls those things which do not exist as though they did who contrary to hope, in hope believed. In other words, Abraham, when he's given this promise, he has no kids. He considered his body, his ability to procreate as good as dead. He was an old man. But contrary to hope, had in hope, he believed the word of God so that he might be the father of many nations according to what was spoken. Now, Psalm 2 doesn't address that. But the more I gave this thought, verse 7 and verse 8 calls us to believe God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. See, to me, that, that, just, that just fascinates me. He calls those things that do not exist as though they did. So I read Psalm 7, excuse me, I read Psalm 2, verse 6 and 7, and even in 8, and it gives me a lot of hope because I read it in the context of what Paul has declared in Romans 4. Not as a skeptic and said, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? You've met those people, right? You know people like that. Again, that's why the genealogies are in Matthew and Luke. It, it signifies that here is the one of whom God has declared, you are my son, today I have begotten you Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance 
and the end of the earth for your possession. That's right out of Daniel chapter 7 that we, we looked at a few times while we were going through Ecclesiastes. Where you have, have one like the Son of Man who is brought before the Ancient of Days and he's given a dominion. He's given uh, uh, power. He's, he's given a kingdom. Um, and then it goes on. I got a minute. You will break them with a rod of iron. And you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That sounds pretty intense, doesn't it? First of all, a couple things. The nations, it's the Greek Hebrew word goyim, translated also the Greeks, the Gentiles. The rod of iron is interesting because in the Septuagint, It doesn't say you will break them. It says you will rule them with a steel rod. And like a vessel of a potter, you will break them. And in fact, I'm going to develop, this, something just leaped off the page to me on this, and I'm going to wait till next week and bring it out to you. And I thought we were going to do one psalm a night, but I don't know who to blame on this. <laughs> me? You've been quiet, too, because we're out of time. I know. We're still out of time. Um, I threw a boatload and a half at you. 